Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Daps, the climate change podcast. Welcome, everyone, to America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons. In today's episode, Adaptation in Paradise, we have Bob Blazer from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. We'll be talking about sea level rise adaptation planning, what it's like to work in a state like Florida on this issue, and we'll learn a lot about what local governments are doing on climate change planning. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm very excited with our episode today. We have Bob Glazer from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and the Florida Wildlife Research Institute. And I'll let Bob explain the sort of differences, but Bob is based in Marathon, Florida. I know, Bob, we go back years, but I'm very excited. Florida seems to be in the news all the time about climate change. And Bob is one of those guys who's actually doing a lot on the issue. And we'll dig into that, but I don't need to talk anymore. Bob, how are you? I'm doing great, Doug. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And so, Bob, I, you know, I want you to relax. I We have this post-show thing I do with Tim Watkins, who I used to work with at the National Park Service. We call it the Wine and Adaptation Power Hour, where we just kind of go over adaptation things. So I just want you to relax, and I'm going to pick your mind and hopefully not get you into trouble or anything like that. So let's get started. Sounds good. All right, let's get started. So climate change in Florida, is it as wacky as the people in the news make it out to be? You know, it's interesting. In our agency, we actually have a fairly robust climate change working group, which is comprised of a number of different activities. We have not been told to uh, stop anything that we do. We focus a lot on climate change, science, as well as adaptation. It is wacky when you look at it from the outside in, but from the inside, we've sort of been supported internally uh, with the work that we do. I think everybody recognizes that Florida is at high risk for um, a lot of changes coming down the road from climate change. So, you know, I'm not in the here to defend the governor, but there have been I think he's sort of received a bad rap in the sense that there have been a number of legislative initiatives that have passed through the Florida legislature, which actually permit local communities to develop what they call adaptation action areas, which are areas that they can then decide to focus their efforts on in terms of flooding and things like that. They don't really call it climate by name, but it's climate in its nature. And where flooding occurs, it's often a result of sea level rise or storm surge or both of those. So we are... Um, we're right on the, you know, there there are activities within the government that have been supportive of what we do here in Florida. All right, so we've totally jumped the gun here. I want to hear more about that. But first off, tell us a little about FWC. It's, so it's a state wildlife agency, but can you just give us a kind of a brief overview of what you guys do, what you're responsible for? Yeah, so the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission is, a, is an organization that is governmental, and it's made up of commissioners that make rules related to wildlife and fisheries. We have a number of different offices within the Fish and Wildlife Commission and uh, divisions. Our division is the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. We develop research programs and processes and provide information to the managers so they can best make management recommendations. There are other divisions that are focused more on the management side of things, but we are focused on providing the research to the managers. So you're a research scientist with FWC and you haven't been doing climate change actually for that long. So what is your day job besides climate change? Well, actually, uh, my day job is pretty fun. I get to work with Queen Conch, which is a large marine snail found throughout the Caribbean. And that particular animal is very good for asking larger questions. 
That is, how can you develop marine reserves that function effectively? What are the ways that populations um, uh, increase and decline? Um, how are they connected? What are the impacts to populations that, imp uh, that affect reproduction and things like that. So we use it as a model organism to ask uh, larger questions. So you spend a lot of time underwater. That's part of your job, right? Yeah, it is. It's a big part of my job. I've got a lot of hours looking at, at seagrass. Oh, you lucky bastard. Quick question. When I go to the Bahamas and I eat conch fritters, is that a bad thing conservation-wise? Well, that's an interesting question. Conch are listed in Appendix 2 of CITES. Basically, that means that any country that exports conch has to have a management plan that it will ensure the survival of the species for the long term. So it is, it's, it's recognized as a species that's in peril by CITES. It also is listed on a number of the Seafood Watch pieces of information that sort of determine whether or not you should be eating different seafood. So, um, it is listed as one that you should sort of avoid. All right, so this is what happens when I talk to scientists. Can you just explain what CITES is real quick? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so CITES is the Convention on the International Trade in Threatened and Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna. That's technically what it is. What it really means is that this is the international treaty that regulates the trade in endangered and threatened species. And these are everything from sturgeon to orchids to, to rhinoceros horns to elephant tusks, leopard skin. So they, they regulate everything um, that has some type of international trade component. Okay. So a little bit of background. I, I used to work with Bob at FWC, so I worked in Florida too. And FWC, Florida's a big state, and FWC has something like, what, 2,500 employees? Yeah, we're spread throughout the state, and sometimes we're spread pretty thin throughout the state, even though it sounds like a lot of people. Compared to a lot of states, uh, I, I think Florida is quite fortunate that you guys focus on non-game species, meaning things like manatee and cougar and such. Some states, they focus on deer and trout, and that's about it. I'm heartened by that fact. Yeah, we've got some pretty interesting species. Uh, we work with a lot of tropical fish down here and the species that you mentioned. So it's, it's there's a lot of pretty interesting activities that occur within the agency. We're here to talk about adaptation, Bob, and I've done this with a previous guest and i'm going to put you on the spot and i want you to do a quick adaptation elevator speech and i'm going to grade you at the end but you know basically what i'm asking if you're encountering someone let's say you see the governor governor rick scott comes up to you and you t say that oh i work on climate change adaptation and he responds what is climate change adaptation what are you going to say to him well, I would. It would be interesting if I were caught in an elevator with uh, Governor Scott. Just uh, so what I would say to the governor is briefly uh, that climate change adaptation is our ability to adjust and make changes in the face of changes that are current occurring to our uh, habitats and our resources. Okay, short and sweet. The previous person, Molly Cross, she gave a pretty good one too. But I asked her to give it to a if she was encountering a toll booth operator, and she had to really quickly come up with one because there was a line forming behind her. And what I my criticism was that she didn't make it relevant to that person. So I think yours was simple enough. Although I might have I might have plugged in a few things because it's the governor. But I think people are getting better. But it's such an esoteric topic that it's kind of hard to to do that elevator speech. That's not, I give you a solid B, so we'll, we'll work on that. I'll take it. Okay. Tell us about climate change planning in Florida. And I know that's a big question, so maybe I, I should help you f frame this a little bit. So you're at FWC, and it's only relatively recently that Florida's been working on climate change. Can you give us a little bit of history of the topic at in Florida? Well, that's a big question, Doug. Uh, it, it goes from the built environment all the way down to the natural resources. 
I work in all of those uh, environments in different capacities, but I'll talk about the natural resources here uh, real quickly. So with, in terms of natural resources, as I mentioned, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission has a large activity related to climate change um, and adaptation in particular. We have a couple of groups that are focused on specifically developing adaptation strategies. One of those is a research and monitoring group which interacts with a, an adaptation work group. And together they put together adaptation strategies that may be relevant for the future based upon alternative scenarios that we may encounter. So within the commission, we've done a number of different activities, which include developing scenario planning projects. I believe that you've had people talk about that in the past mm -hmm. in, your, in your webinars or your, in your podcasts. And so some of ours are very similar to what you, we heard earlier from Nick, and those are focused on what a future scenario might look like, what the landscape might look like under different conditions. Now, those conditions uh, may be related to a variety of different activities. They could be uh, related to not only how we conserve uh, the resources and how different climate change impacts may, may occur or what they may mean for those resources, but also how humans relocate on the landscape. Is there gonna be a large development in the area that we're looking at? What happens if there is, what happens if there isn't? Will there be a lot of money for conservation or no money for conservation? A lot of this work was done early on with USGS and US Fish and Wildlife Service, and we, we've used it in order to sort of ask the same questions, but more at for issues relevant to the state rather than the federal uh, government. FWC has quite a few employees. How many people are actually working on climate change within the agency? So you guys have a research unit, but then you have people do planning. I mean, who's involved? What, what, what does it mean to be doing adaptation at FWC? Well, we only have one employee working on climate change full time. The rest of us are doing this as sort of a labor of love. Okay. Um, and, uh, and because we realize that it is, a, first of all, it's personally very rewarding in the sense that it's a very interesting topic that's rapidly evolving. But also, uh, we realize that for us to be effective in meeting our mission, we're going to have to address some of these changes that are coming down the road. So what's the position there? Who, who's that? What's the position again? Well, that's a temporary position for a sea level rise coordinator. Oh. So it's, it's one person who has been funded within the state, and she sort of oversees meetings, developing programs. Uh, interfacing with other agencies and writing hurt on the rest of us. Well, I'm sure that people could track that name down if they wanted to, but uh, we're not putting a target on our back. But uh, wh wh what, what's her name? Just so if people are interested in contacting FWC about this? Yeah, her name is Heather Young. Heather Young. She's really quite good. She came from New York where she did a lot of this work previously. Oh, another New York to Florida person. Oh, brother. You guys got to <laughs> get some locals once in a while. Oh, it's okay. You have one person dedicated, and then you have a series of volunteers in the agency, but it's not so much a volunteer if you're really kind of integrating this issue within conservation, right? Uh, this all goes towards our, our core mission, Doug, which is really to ensure that our resources are sustained in ways that can uh, benefit humans. That's how it reads, roughly. Do you feel like, the, I mean, you'd mentioned the commission, and so people understand that there's a commission that kind of is in charge of the agency, and it's made of sort of people outside the agency. They aren't employees, but they're just appointed there by the governor. And do you feel like the commission's been supportive of some of the work that you guys are doing? Oh, yeah, definitely. In fact, there was a, a, a resolution passed in, I think it was 2008 or so, that uh, recognized that climate change did exist, and they directed staff to work on projects to identify what ways are available for us to, to adapt to those changes. And so there's been no updated resolutions or anything. They're still off working off that one. That's good, I guess. 
Yeah, we're still working off of that. Okay, and they haven't, haven't deleted it or anything. Okay, that's encouraging. Think about all the different things that you're doing within the agency, but you'd mentioned some of the scenario planning workshops, but like literally, you know, what would be a day in the life of adaptation planning within the agency? Like what are you doing? What sort of projects and sort of funding involved with that? Well, so we've got a number of different projects. Um, let me just mention one that's going on right now that I think is pretty exciting. Uh, we're working with wildlife management areas, which are coastal, Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, a number of them. And we're also working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, refuges that are in the same area. And what we're trying to do is understand whether or not the missions will be relevant under possible future conditions, what particular actions they can develop that will help them to adapt to a change in conditions. For example, at the local level, it could be things as small as moving boat ramps or building new boat ramps in areas that are more, that are at higher ground. There could be other things to ensure that the, um, the woodpeckers, for example, have enough habitat. There's a number of different activities. We One of the big activities that FWC does in order to ensure the sustainability of a lot of the habitats that are especially in the, in the areas that are upstate are associated with burning. So we do controlled burns, but those burn windows may change in the future. And so we have to understand what that means. And so these people that we're working with are trying to wrap their heads around it and sort of when they're developing their work plans, trying to understand what climate means to them and incorporating climate change into uh, future work plans so they can provide the best services that are, are needed. Okay. So I had Nikhil Advani from World Wildlife Fund on a a podcast and he talked about adaptation planning and one of his major criticisms of what's really going on sort of nationally internationally is there's a heck of a lot of planning there's things like vulnerability assessments but there's not a lot of implementation i mean do you have some example i mean you gave some examples there of some maybe some planning but are would you say those are examples of actual implementation yeah so actually one of the cool things i think we're doing down here in the keys and it's not really related to fwc but it's it's through what the, what's known as the Gulf and Caribbean Fisheries Institute, a nonprofit, we're actually funding some high school students who have a project to develop different devices that can cool seawater in conditions that may impact corals. So one of the big problems with corals, Doug, is that uh, when they're exposed to high temperatures, they do what's known as bleaching. That is, they turn white because the algae that provides them with food is sort of expelled under these stressful conditions. It makes it sort of look like a um, like snow has fallen across all these corals. It's, it's really a, a pretty dramatic sight. It would be beautiful if it wasn't so devastating. So we've put out a call within this nonprofit organization to try to, rather than just watch corals die, which is how, what a lot of people do, we wanted to actually have some solutions. And the solutions really need to be implementable. And we got a, a, a proposal from these, this group of local high school students who had four or five different devices they wanted to test. Now, we recognize, of course, that this is not going to save the entire coral reef universe, but there may be a couple of really important corals and coral areas that are core to either the enjoyment of the public or they provide baby corals that go to other locations, and they may be very high priority. So if we could actually keep those ones alive through these proactive kinds of efforts, then we felt that that would be a, a really good way to sort of break out of the normal boxes of um, how we address coral reef uh, sustainability and climate as it relates to climate change. So that's one of these activities that I think is really exciting for us. Locally, there are a number of activities that are going on here, including building fire stations that are higher, building roads that are more adapted 
to changing tides. We're also working within the commission to identify where culverts need to be changed so that it can be more water exchange and other activities like that. FWC specifically, if you guys have done some really cool workshops, and so during these workshops you do scenario planning, and then you have like these brainstorms, and at some point that there's actually uh, where you list adaptation actions. Would you say that's kind of an accurate description of the process you go through? Yeah, that's right. And so you have these. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just I was just going to say that. So you have these adaptation actions. What do you do with those? And you just depreciate what it's like to work in a state agency. It's like, well, do I have funding to carry out those adaptation actions? And I think your state wildlife action plan, and for people who don't know, these are things that all 50 states have to help protect non-game species. Series of recommendations that come out of that, but do you feel like FWC has been able to implement many of the actions that you guys have generated? Oh, yeah, and we're actually starting on that. You know, this is this whole process has been sort of a linear trajectory, if you will, in the sense that we've sort of, you know, we're, we're learning how to uh, walk here, too. And so we've sort of been moving on this process of understanding the science and then identifying how we can, from that science, what are the most appropriate strategies and then how to implement those strategies and what are the highest priority strategies. So we just got done with a project where we identified, I don't know, something like 50 different strategies and we scored them all to see which would be the most, most effective. And some of the most effective were things like building living shorelines. Now, if you don't know what living shorelines are, they're, these, they're where there's a lot of seagrass and oyster reefs and things like that growing right along the shore. And they provide a lot of buffering from erosion and other uh, detrimental processes. We've actually funded a number of projects that were focused on uh, developing these living shorelines to either restore or to provide some type of resilient resilience to those locations. So those are some of the activities right now that we're funding through our state wildlife grants program. So there's this big conflict with development and conservation in Florida. Have you encountered a situation where you've had a recommendation come out of your climate change planning and it's prevented a development from happening? Has that sort of moment come up yet? No, and I don't think that that's sort of the direction that we would take. That would be a very heavy-handed way of doing something. I think we would prefer to work with people to in the, sort of a, a larger landscape concept. So for example, the federal government has what they call the landscape conservation cooperatives within which they try to, to develop these large partnerships of landowners and conservation agencies, nonprofits, to try to manage um, ecosystems at the larger scale uh, through these partnerships. And I think that's sort of the direction we would go. It'd be really um, very unusual for us to shut down a development because of climate especially. Now, don't you think that's where we're going, though? I mean, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. So let's say you have a plot of land, a decent plot of land, and there's like there's still some left in Florida, and it has moderate conservation value today. And you're like, okay, you know, there's wildlife there, but it's not that critical. It's some place that you might be able to build a mall. But some of the models tell you that with sea level rise, that you're going to have the, uh, people are going to move because they're going to be fleeing the, the coast, or and then all of a sudden, a terrestrial system might actually be more valuable. And I'm guessing some of your, your models, your future models are saying these things. And so you, you would hopefully be advocating today for conservation lands of the future. I mean, don't you think that's where we're headed? Well, I think we're trying to identify those high priority um, and high value areas and how we manage those. It, it, there are a number of different ways to manage them. So they could be managed through partnerships. We could identify them and and purchase them through whatever land purchasing authority is available at the time. But for us to go into a privately held 
um, area and stop a project, I think would be a really, um, that would be a very difficult sell, especially in this political environment. Well, yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I'm not necessarily arguing that you're going to go in and make that final call. Okay, you can't build here. But to even argue against development because of what you expect the future landscape to look like, that would put up, make a lot of people uncomfortable. That would be very tricky. Yeah, it would be. And, you know, the thing about it is I think we need to keep in mind as resource managers that natural resource conservation is not the top priority for a lot of people, given, you know, economic development or, or given impacts to existing critical infrastructure, such as hospitals, they are going to prioritize conservation at a lower level. That's why we need to be proactive and, and partner with a lot of these organizations. So, for example, let me just tell you about a, a poll that we took internally in a local group here. It's called the Monroe County Climate Action Committee. And this group it, it makes recommendations to the county commission here in the Florida Keys on how best to manage or how best to address climate change and what it means for the local citizens. We looked at a number of different potential impacts, and natural resources came out towards the bottom. The much higher things were, well, we need to make sure that hospitals have access we need to make sure that the roads, people can evacuate from the keys and storms. So natural resources, even though there were three of us on this committee of 11 that are from natural resources agencies, um, it's still ranked very low. The rest of the people who represent the entire community and including some of us in the natural resources agencies voted for other priorities. And I think that is the world that we live in. And we just have to ensure that our strategies take into account these other realities. Well, you mentioned the compact. I mean, it just for listeners out there, just I think it's an amazing initiative. I mean, I'm, I'm not as familiar with sort of implementation actions, but the amount of government entities and NGOs, and it's a, it's a great platform for people to come together and talk about this issue. And I hear about it all the time. I'm, I'm based in D.C. And, Bob, you're involved with it, and just I, I think it's it's a great sign of the that region taking action yeah I'm, I'm involved more at the local level of the monroe county the four county compact which comprises monroe county the florida keys dade county which is miami broward which is fort lauderdale and palm beach county the they have come together and put together different strategies on how to deal with climate it's a really interesting program in the sense that we have a lot of political backing both locally here in monroe county and at the climate, at the four county scale. So it, what's interesting is the fact that our committee here locally in Monroe County, when we put together resolutions that we send to the uh, county commission, not one of them has been um, has been rejected. We are always uh, we're looked at uh, very favorably, even though there, you know, this is not a group, this is not a commission that's comprised of a bunch of liberal people. Locally, uh, Republicans and Democrats recognize climate change is a big issue. And at, at the local level, at the, county, at the larger level, the state level, uh, and also our local or our federal representatives that are in Washington, they're all behind the idea of us getting together and unifying under the idea that climate change is real and it's occurring. Yeah, the Republican uh, Representative Cubello, he's been actually quite a leader. He's in, I've actually been to his office here in D.C., but one of a handful of Republican representatives who want to do something about climate change. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he's probably involved to some extent down there. Yeah, he's our local representative, and he is. Uh, we had our meeting last year, which happens every year of the Ford County Compact, 
was in Key West. He wasn't able to attend, but he had a video broadcast encouraging us to continue, encouraging other Republicans to join him in trying to address the issue of climate change. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of yes or no questions, and I'm going to see if you're going to be able to answer them as yes or no. Okay, let's tr- <laughs> Sounds like fun. Will the key deer be with us 100 years from now? Well, <laughs> yes or no. I'm gonna, I'm, I'll let you explain later. Question. I'll let you explain later, but yes or no. Uh, yes, in some form or another. And let me explain why I'm hedging this. And that's because we actually have a project starting here within a month that is funded by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in which we're going to be addressing those federal trust species, those endangered species found only in the Keys, like the key deer, and trying to understand how we can ensure their long-term sustainability and survival. You know, there, there are big decisions that have to be made on some of these species, and there are no good answers. But because we are addressing them, I think that there will always be, um, they may be in a zoo, but they'll always be key deer. Well, Bob, it's one of those moments that you and I worked together, and I, we were at a workshop, and it was interesting to hear one of the key deer experts talk about that the deer are actually genetic misfits. They went through a bottleneck, I think, back in the 20s and 30s. And so even the idea of translocating them to the mainland, all you're basically doing is translocating an inferior deer into a healthy population. Does that? Do you remember that? Does that seem right? Yeah, I remember that very clearly. I remember the problems that they have with diseases that they might be able to transmit. But these things, not only genetic misfits, they're behavioral misfits. I mean, if, you, if you're if you driving through Big Pine Key and your window's open and you're stopped, these things will come up and try to get into your car <laughs> to get a, get at a muffin or whatever you got on the seat next to you. And, and one thing I realized, I didn't know this, Doug. Do you know that they moo? They move like cows. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and they look at you with those big deer eyes and say, come on, give me the muffin. But, okay. but I'm, I'm not one to succumb. Okay, second yes or no question. A little bit more controversial. Will the Florida Everglades be a marine park 100 years from now? Well, portions of it will definitely be underwater. I'm sure there are high uh, parts of that, of the Everglades, that will still be terrestrial. But that's not such a bad thing, necessarily. We did a study down here to see what the impacts would be for some species when we started to see sea level rise occurring further north from the Keys uh, up towards the Everglades. And what's interesting is that we actually found that lobsters, these, you know, the, these are the lobsters that don't have the claws, they're the spiny lobsters, and they look more like cockroaches than the lobsters up in Maine. But these, these little things, they come in when they're free swimming and they settle on the bottom. But they can only go so far because there are these basins in Florida Bay right between the Keys and, and the Everglades that have these borders that emerge from the seawater currently. And these borders actually serve as a barrier, and what's behind them are these basins that get very warm and very highly saline. There's a lot of salinity in there, uh, so that any lobster that does get into there would not survive. But it was sort of discussed and determined that under sea level rise conditions, the, these base, basins may overwash, and the lobsters may actually be able to go in there, and the temperatures may be cooler, and the salinity may be lower, so it may be actually improving the um, habitat for these nursery areas for these little lobsters. So lobsters will do better in a warming world in Florida. Well, you know, some winners and losers with climate change. That's right, and that's an important thing to remember. (laughs) I think the Everglades, I've seen some of those models, even three feet, the terrestrial systems are going to be so degraded even with that. And, you know, some of the 
who who's the it's Wanless out of is he University of Miami Miami he's talking about six or seven feet by the end of the century so yeah there are some models that really have us underwater and you know here I am I'm supposed to be knowledgeable about this thing and I just uh, bought some land to build a house here in the Keys. Let me repeat, Bob is based in Marathon, Florida, the Florida Keys, fantastic location, but you're just you're you're just timing it, right? You you like 100 years that doesn't impact you. Yeah, I'm not going to be uh, alive long enough to see our property go underwater. And so who you who you like leave your property to in your will, that's sort of like a cruel joke, right? That's you'll send a, a message that way. Yeah, I'll leave it to the bank. <laughs> leave it to the bank. Excellent. I want to get back to kind of maybe a little bit of the politics of it. You had talked a little bit earlier about Back, what was it, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when that story broke that people in Florida, the state government, aren't allowed to talk about climate change. And so it just it became this huge story. And the, the reporter who wrote the story, I mean, it went international. BBC was picking it up. And I'm, I'm sure it was probably interesting for you to see, because meanwhile, FWC is still doing a lot of things on climate change. But, you know, you got to have to you're practical. You're not sitting there waving your arms and saying, look at all these things that we're doing. What was your sense within FWC as that story broke? Well, uh, you know, we have a steering committee that sort of provides guidance to us on what to do uh, relative to climate change, and they were they continued to be supportive. Everybody said, keep doing what you're doing. We like what you're doing. Uh, we have not received any instructions for you to stop. As I mentioned earlier, and I think it bears repeating, the legislature here does recognize that flooding is occurring at a higher frequency, and they're providing um, at least the legislative flexibility for local governments and local entities to develop uh, adaptation plans to address, you know, flooding as it continues to occur. Well, I, I don't want to be disingenuous here. I was actually interviewed for that article. I, I talked to the reporter on it. And so we, we t chatted a little bit about FWC, but I just think the fact that you aren't doing the sort of same thing that DEP does, you didn't make such a, I guess, sexy part of that story. But interestingly enough, the reporter did a follow-up story on like, okay, what are the state agencies doing on climate change? And it seemed like the atmosphere cooled a little bit because FWC came out and said, we're doing X, Y, and Z. And I think Thomas Eason, who's who's a director at FWC, was the spokesperson. And there was no hiding anything. He was, when I read it, he was pretty clear on what he was talking about. And I think it was a little bit humiliating for some of the other state agencies who just really weren't doing anything. And I know it's a little bit more political for them, but yeah, the, the how those two stories kind of came out was really interesting. Well, you know, I think it's sort of indicative of what's happening at a more national level. I think there's a recognition, even among fairly conservative people, that climate change is occurring. I, and I think where the, the, the issue really arises is whether or not it's caused by humans. So, I mean, we, we've got records that go back into the 1800s that show that sea level rise has been rising every year. Um, we're five inches higher than we were half a decade ago. And so we're, you know, it, this is, these are facts that you cannot hide. Places in Key West that were built above flood are now flooding on high tide. So these are irrefutable facts. Well, I think you're partly protected in that, you know, you're not dealing with the emission side so much. You're not telling people what to drive or their energy to use. And so, like you said, some of the the data that you can tap into is it's already there. It's existing. And so you're just responding and doing planning for it. You're not under the gun as much, I, I expect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we recognize the fact that, that sea levels are rising and we're just trying to figure out the best way to 
deal with those futures. I, I wanted to point out, I was looking at the website for FWC in the climate change section. I don't know if you have anything to do with that anymore or if you add content on occasion, but there's a section on what you can do. And keep in mind, 99% of it talks about all this stuff that you just described, adaptation planning, conservation planning, but then the what you can do is all about carbon and emissions and light bulbs. And it, to me, it's, it was an issue when I was there. It's like, it's just not an area that FWC, That's it's it's not your area of expertise. And it seems my recommendation is get rid of it. I mean, there must be other things when it comes to adaptation that you can at least give people a heads up. You know, here are some resources to go look at, but just to kind of make that pivot and just it's jarring in how irrelevant it is to what you guys are really doing. Well, we'll take that uh, input and I'll, <laughs> and I'll um, pass it along to the people that do the website. I haven't looked at the website for, for a while. It's it's not a living website then. It you know it's just it's what you can do and I was excited. I'm like okay is this a new section and it's like what are you gonna do? What can the public do on adaptation and it's all just you know, use energy efficient light bulbs and stuff. And yeah, other groups do that, do it better. DEP should be doing that. Anyway, there's my feedback is just a citizen of, well, I'm not a citizen of Florida, but I, I grew up there so I can say a few things. So, well, thanks Doug. That was, that was <laughs> well, passed on. Sure. Don't patronize me. So Bob, you know, we, we mentioned national issues and I, I don't want to miss any of that. So You've been doing incredible work. I know the work that you do in Florida. And I just want to mention to listeners that there was a new adaptation award that's implemented by the Association for Fish and Wildlife Agencies. But it's actually it, it was generated through the White House and the Council of Environmental Quality. And it's a federal award that they do collaborate with the states. And so they had their first awards this year and they had different categories. And Bob was a winner of honorable mention, which is actually a pretty big deal if you think about all the, the nominations to that. And again, Bob, congratulations. I think people recognize the stuff that you're doing in Florida. And so you are a national leader on adaptation. It must feel great. Well, uh, to be honest with you, I was really surprised when it occurred um, when I was nominated and you know, there's so many people that do so much. It's really, um, I don't know. I, I just, it, it was a big surprise, and I would. There's a lot of people that do a lot of things. I couldn't be here without a lot of uh, a lot of the colleagues I have. Well, I also mentioned nationally. You are not just staying in Florida with the work that you're doing, right? You are. You're a hot commodity. You're getting recruited to do other things. Like, what? What are some of the other things? Because it's an emerging issue. It's it's popping up with the feds and other states. And I mean, what are some of the other national things you're getting involved in? So, together with some of your other your other guests, I was part of the original scenario planning workshop that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I developed it was a course for practitioners to understand how to use scenario planning to sort of visualize the future and understand what options are available there are a number of other things in uh, nationally and internationally you know i guess the, the main point is that we're all in this together and there's a lot of things happening throughout the world and it's not the more any of us can get involved the better off we'll all be i know we need to wrap this up soon but just going back to florida do can you just name some partners that you've worked with that have been really good? I mean, be it NGOs or cities or some of the federal agencies, just so people have a sense of what's the d diverse crowd down there working on climate change? So here in Florida, I'm currently uh, working with, as I mentioned before, the Monroe County Climate Change Advisory Committee, which advises the county commission on how best to deal with climate. And so we have been trying to understand what adaptation means at this local scale. 
for not only natural resources, but also the built environment. We've developed a climate action plan, which the county has adopted, and our partners on that are pretty widespread. Everybody from the Nature Conservancy to the person who is actually one of the natural resource consultants to Donald Trump. Oh. Um, we have other people we uh, on that committee that are from the Audubon Society. But we take a lot of our guidance from what work has been done at the municipal level in some of the other locations here in South Florida. We've worked together with, um, with the city of Fort Lauderdale, who is probably the pioneering leaders on adaptation in the municipal environment. And Broward County, which, within which Fort Lauderdale it, you know, exists, we've worked with Broward County to try to develop plans for our local, our local adaptation plan. So, you know, there are a lot of people down here working on this issue, everywhere from the scientists at the universities to the municipalities, to the NGOs, TNC down here with Chris Berg is very active in um, trying to understand what climate means for Florida Keys. Fish and Wildlife Service worked very closely with, and you mentioned earlier the National Fish, Wildlife and Plants Climate Adaptation Strategy, which is, was developed out of the White House with a group of different organizations, including Fish and Wildlife Service and NOAA. We work very closely with NOAA on a lot of these issues. So there are a lot of organizations who are trying to understand what climate change means for their resources and how best to deal with them in the future. We're trying to do that at the state level. And, and you spoke earlier about implementation. That's where really the rubber hits the road. And that's where we're starting to move towards really trying to understand how we can best implement a lot of these projects. You would confidently say that you're allowed to talk about climate change and you're actually doing something on climate change. Yeah, in fact, uh, we just had a paper come out um, within the last week or two in which there was a sidebar that describes the structure of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission's climate adaptation uh, group. So we're not trying to hide anything. Everything's public record. And actually, I think we should be proud of what we do. You know, this political climate makes it a little bit difficult to to do a lot of arm waving, but, you know, the people here in Florida are pretty advanced. I, I remember at that scenario planning workshop, one of the high people, or the people that are higher up, I shouldn't say high people, I don't think he was, but one of the people that were higher up in U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service spoke to all the researchers that were there from Florida, including Fish and Wildlife Service, some of us from Fish and Wildlife Commission, and other uh, nonprofits and for-profit groups working on climate and said, you guys are the Bell Labs of climate right now. And that was really about the best compliment I think we've ever had. You know, it's sort of nice to be recognized that not only are you doing something, but you're sort of cutting edge in what you're doing. Cool. From what I've heard, you guys deserve that credit. So I want to wrap this up, but we've covered a lot of ground. And I think I just want to really highlight, you started off just a you're a research scientist, and so you, you have a, a long career, but it's only in the last three or four years where you've gotten involved with climate change adaptation, and you've developed this national reputation on the issue. And what excites you about this issue? You know, you've jumped in, but why? I mean, to get people a sense of, you know, this is, a, a, I guess, a later career issue for you, but uh, what's so exciting about it? Well, you know, for me personally, most of my career was spent looking at conch here in the Keys. And, and that's a really interesting animal to look at, but it's very sciencey, And it really doesn't go towards policy or really advancing, advancing conservation at larger spatial scales. In other words, I really wanted to 
be able to do something more policy focused to try to build a better future. You know, I've spent, like I said, I spent a lot of time underwater and I've seen a lot of changes occurring and most of them are, are for the worse. When you go out there and see this kind of snowfall over corals um, and you realize that it's because of a changing climate, you know, it makes you sort of want to, to ask the hard questions and try to really jump in and try to understand how you can, even though it may seem daunting and impossible, but how you can make a little bit of difference in, in some of these larger issues that have global um, impacts. So it, it's been, for me, it's been a very rewarding uh, sort of path to try to understand what climate means to all of us, not only in the natural resources world, but through the Climate Change Advisory Committee, what it means locally. You know, who was it? I think it was Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. And, you know, what we do here, it really impacts most of what, you know, we'll see happen around us. Maybe not to corals, but definitely to human condition, the local species, you know, connections between species and humans. There's a lot of areas here that are where there's a lot of risk. And if we can reduce some of that risk, then you know, I'll feel that I've accomplished something. We think alike. I had a printout that I had at my desk. It was all adaptation is local, totally ripping off the speaker's words. Thanks, Bob. This has been great. I just want listeners to feel like is Florida just sticking their head in the sand? I guess maybe some people are, but uh, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Commission is doing incredible work. I highly recommend you check out their website. And I think even the website doesn't properly reflect all the work that people are doing. I'm sure Bob would be very accessible if you're able to track him down. I'm going to have on my website, americadaps.org, information about Bob, links to the podcast, and just links to additional information that if Bob wants to share with me that I'll put in there. But, Bob, are there any final words you want to share before we sign off? Yeah, I think so. I think it's not hard to get involved in climate and climate change and what it means for all of us. There's, you know, you can do this in your own backyard. You can put in bird feeders that, that help birds that are maybe impacted on their flyway. You can plant native species that make it more resilient. There's very little, you know, there are very, very easy things to do to address some of these climate issues. And, you know, you mentioned sort of half-heartedly about the mitigation part of it, that is reducing your carbon footprint. But, you know, it starts somewhere. And if each of us tries to make the effort at, at reducing carbon output, then um, over time, it's going to make a difference. And I used to be one of those people that said, we, we're not going to be able to do anything. Climate change is baked into the cards, but, but that's not necessarily true. I mean, we're going to see sea level rise over the next 200 years. That's, that's inevitable. Where the real problems are going to occur is when we start getting two, three, four, five, six degrees uh, Celsius change in, in air temperature. And that's when we're going to start to see problems. And that's where we can start to really make a difference in terms of carbon emissions. It's really limiting what those impacts might be from rising temperatures. I agree. Great final words. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I think people are watching what goes on in Florida and lots of interesting things. And so thanks again. Sure. My pleasure, Doug. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is America Daps podcast. This is the Adaptation Roundtable, and we're, Tim Watkins has been my regular contributor to this, and we're currently debating whether we should change it to Wine and Adaptation Power Hour. And so We'd actually like to hear from you if that would entice you to listen in all the way through if we change the name to that. What do you think, Tim? Should we really consider changing the name? 
Oh, I think we should. You know, there's been talk about how vineyards and wine growing regions around the country will really be affected by climate change negatively, of course, and that there may be a serious need to breed some some new resistant varieties of grapes that can remain in those regions. Or, or perhaps, I don't know, maybe we'll be drinking Norwegian Pinot Grigio sometime soon. It's very much in keeping with the spirit of the thing. So let's let's change the name. Okay, I think we're going to do it, and then I also want to share what type of wine that we're drinking, and we want to be brutally honest. If it's two-buck chuck, then you need to tell the <laughs> listeners that, you know? They need to know what kind of person you are, and maybe we'll have a, a, a wine person on as a guest to talk about climate change. That's actually a good idea. <laughs> Enough about the wine and adaptation power hour. I wanted to talk about one thing today, Tim. We had Bob Glazer on from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, and so I thought it was relevant that there was a really interesting article that came out recently. It's in the Miami New Times, and the title of the article is Emails Show Some Florida Building Officials Still in Denial About Climate Change. And so quickly, if I'm sure most folks haven't read this article, just talked about article about climate change was shared on this listserv planners and building code people, just people that deal with development, are part of. And so after a few days, there was some chatter on it and some folks that were complete you know, skeptics on climate change. And so these emails were forwarded to a reporter and it, it got into the Miami New Times and it kind of became an issue. And um, Tim, I'm just curious what you think about this. I thought it was interesting, interesting because, I mean, in some ways I think it as a positive that adaptation is sort of creeping into other sectors of society. And even though not everyone's necessarily thinking like what we want them to think, it's part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a science education guy and a climate change education guy, and so when I read that article, I really picked up on some of the comments from these these deniers, and, and they call themselves deniers, not skeptics, so I think we need to be clear on that point. And there was one guy who said, you know, oh, all climate change models are, you know, they're models and garbage in, garbage out, and we don't believe them. But then at the end of the article, he was quoted as basically you know, saying that his view of the world, that climate change is cyclical and natural, and he believes in that. Well, of course, guess what sorts of things tell us about natural cycles in climate change? Models. So on one hand, he's really critical of using models to study climate change and to conclude that humans are causing climate change these days. But on the other hand, he's perfectly accepting of models that form the basis for any sort of cyclical and orbital cycle changes in climate change. So he's he's trying to get it both ways, I think. And that's a, to me, that's a really interesting sort of um, conundrum in how people view science and understand science or misunderstand it and trust it or or don't trust it. To me, that's a real sign of a need to help people understand really how science works. Yeah, you know, you can really dissect what he says. You know, at one point he mentions that he doesn't have any scientific studies to quote, but then later on he says, you know, the polar ice caps are actually getting larger. And so that in itself, he's trying to share some science that's an accurate science, but he's quoting some what he thinks is science. And it's you know, it all over the map on, like, what is information that he's willing to share in these conversations. And so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. They're, they're deniers. I give credit to the guy, though, you know, when he was called out by a reporter, he seemed a little less confident in, in his, his denial. And so I think you recognize that maybe on such a public forum, he shouldn't be so dismissive of this area. Yeah, I would agree. And that, that point you raised, I think, really highlights the importance of, you know, good media, good journalism, and sort of the, the fourth estate and the role that it plays in uh, public debates and in our democracy. I, I, I think it's absolutely essential that we have good journalism that really probes deeply and does not just sort of accept people's expectations that they can 
you know, pose what's really a false debate. But we need to have journalists go in there and call people out and say, well, no, actually, you know, the facts say this, or your argument contradicts your other argument, and, and tease that apart a bit. So, well, there's a real friction it seems in Florida. We we and we talked to Bob earlier, and I'm just aware of all the different controversies associated with the governor, but there seems to be some newspapers who are just coming out swinging, and that's a great thing, but it's just, it's this friction that doesn't necessarily have to be there. In in Miami, some of the local planners are really doing some creative thinking on this subject, but you know, you go 10 minutes away from Miami, and it's kind of old school, and uh, um, like you said, the media has a huge role to play in a place like Florida. It's a bit of a basket case, and I say that, I don't want to this Florida too much. I grew up in Florida. I'm a Floridian, but it is a bit of a basket. <laughs> I don't want to diss Florida either because I was um, down in uh, South Florida once a few years ago at, a, at an event, a reception, and guess what was served at that reception? But Florida wine. And uh, one of those wines was made heavily, or at least based heavily, on avocados. It was an avocado wine. Interesting. Which seems really strange, but it was actually very, very, very good. It was um, kind of like a nice, fruity Pinot Grigio. Wow. I think we need to get a tasting of that for the next uh, Wine and Adaptation Power Hour intro. Um, Absolutely. And I don't remember the name of the vintner, but I could find out because I know the people who were involved in ordering it. Okay, on that note, I think we've taught our listeners something that Florida does actually produce wine. Uh, it, it sounds like it's tolerable, which I was in Georgia, and it wasn't tolerable, but you go a little bit farther south, and it sounds like it's tolerable. So there you go. Well, we'll raise a glass to America Adapts on the next call. All right, well, raise a glass or two, depending how long we go on. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. And until next time, we'll see you on America Adapts. Appreciate it, Tim. Yep, take care. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on America Daps. I hope you enjoyed our guest, Bob Glazer from Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and also follow us on Facebook at America Daps. If you have ideas for speakers, please contact me at americaadapts at gmail.com. Until next time, you adapt, we adapt, America Daps. Thanks. <laughs>